today will be in the fifth chapter, John chapter 5. And we're going to think through the first 18 verses of the chapter, the story of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath and the response that that brings, not, not just from the man who was healed, but, but importantly just for our application as well as just understanding the, the ongoing storyline of the Gospel of John, the response that that healing on the Sabbath brought from the Jewish leaders. It's a beautiful passage, and one that I think, to sort of set this up, it's one that is helpful for us not only to see Jesus clearly, and not only just to see his, his deity, which is very, it's one of those, another one of those places that's just really very forthrightly stated. I mean, if you just look, if you got your Bible open, just looking at, at verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it's just one of those, it's almost like another one of those John 1, 1 passages, you know, uh, in the beginning was the Word and was word with, was with God, and the Word was God. He was making himself equal with God. So this is a good passage, not to help us see Jesus clearly, his, his deity and his power, his authority, and his mercy. That's going to come prominent in this passage, uh, and his kindness. That's the thing I want us to see here most clearly. It's also a passage that, that is good, not only to show us Christ, but quite honestly and quite soberly to give us glimpses of ourselves. Um, there, there, there are three major players in this story. There's the invalid man, and there's, there's Jesus who healed him, and then there are finally the, the Jewish rulers who responded in some way to this event. Two of those three... <laughs> Are, are really instructive for us to see ourselves, and it ain't Jesus. I'll just go ahead and put it that way. Um, we always say, if you've been around here in our college ministry for long enough, you've heard me say it, especially at the end of a lesson to discuss in your groups. There's three questions that, that are, are uh, it's a good practice in whatever passage you read in the Bible for devotional purposes. Three good, good questions to ask yourself in application, in meditation, pondering what you just read, is to ask these three questions. One, what does it teach me about God, right? Because the Bible is not fundamentally about me or you. It's, it's to reveal the Lord God. It's His Word revealing Himself to us. So what does it teach me about God? Any passage you read can teach you something about the one who revealed those words to you. But secondly, what does it teach me about myself, right? Thirdly, what, what does it lead me to do? And you can do that with almost any passage you come to. No doubt some passages are easier to do that than others, but I think this is one of the easier ones you can do that with. So we're going to try to do a bit of it. So John chapter 5, let's read our passage together and then we'll dive in. John chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1 and I'll read through verse 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has, has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And as we study and dive deeply into these words, revealed to us through the Apostle John, by the enabling and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see your truth here? Would you give us eyes to see Jesus clearly? Would you give us eyes to see ourselves clearly? Would you give us eyes to understand from its words what it, what it would call us and lead us to do in response? Give us eyes to see the truth and minds to understand it. Give us hearts to embrace and love it and to care, to see its importance. Would you give us wills to obey? As we said, what, what it, whatever it is you lead us to do here, Give us all ears to hear and give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to look at this story that we just read from two different angles, just two different angles. Uh, first, I want us to think about the encounter that, that happens here between Jesus and the invalid man. Just, let's just think about the facts of the case. Let's try to put ourselves in the situation. Let's read it autobiographically as if it were happening to us. Let's just get into the facts of what happened, the encounter between Jesus and the invalid man there at the pool of Bethesda. And then I want us to think for a minute about the response, not just of the invalid man, but especially the Jewish rulers who, who responded to the healing of this man. That's just, that's, it's going to be basically very straightforward, and, and uh, so let's just dive into it. And let's think first about the encounter between Jesus and the invalid man here. Let's get our bearings of what we just read. So G- John is always really good to give us a time stamp and a, and a where are we, when are we. Uh, the last chapter ended with Jesus and his disciples back in Cana of Galilee, which if you're thinking about the geography of that place, you have Jerusalem and Judea here, and you go north to Galilee up here. To go north, you go through Samaria into Galilee. And so they were back north. That's where the last chapter ended. They were north in Cana of Galilee. That's where he was in chapter 2 when he was at the wedding in Cana of Galilee and he performed his first miracle, his first sign, turning water into wine. That was in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 4, he is back in that place where he performed his second sign, 
which was healing the official's son. Remember why he had gone back there a second time. Uh, because in chapter 4, verse 1, we were told that Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And verse 3, so he left and departed again for Galilee. So uh, Jesus had performed some miracles and said some things there in Jerusalem for the Passover that had garnered him some unwanted attention uh, from the Pharisees. And he had, he had already said, my hour is not yet here. So uh, he just said, I'm going to get out of here for a little while until some things settle down, and then I'll come back. And uh, so he, he left Jerusalem, and he went north to, to Galilee, passing through Samaria. That's where he met the woman at the well. And the other people from Sychar went north to Cana of Galilee. And now he's coming back to Jerusalem in chapter 5. We come to chapter 5, and it says, verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, I, this is not going to be the main point of the story, but I just want to point something out to you just so that you notice these little things. Uh, it, it doesn't tell us how much time passed between Cana and here. It just says after this. And it doesn't tell, tell us what feast of the Jews was here. It just says there was a feast of the Jews. Now, if it doesn't tell you, it's not, it must not be important which one it was or else he would have included them. And he does include it sometimes, many times actually, which feast it was. But looking at, look at verse 1, I just want to point out quickly how it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem. Now, I've been telling you, I feel like a weatherman, like telling you where things were, right? So he had, been, he had come from Galilee to Jerusalem. Where is Galilee in relation to Jerusalem, it's north of it, right? So he's going this way. So why? But it says, you would, wouldn't you normally expect it to say they went down to Jerusalem? I mean, we, we would say that. If, if, we're, if I'm going to go to, go to the beach, I'm going down to the beach. I'm not going up to the beach. You'd think I'm going to Tennessee, right? We, well, that's how we talk. So why would it say if he's going south, why would it not say he went down to Jerusalem? Why Is that not a mistake in the Bible to say he went up to Jerusalem because he's not going up, he's going down. Well, why would he say up? Because literally it was up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a, on, a, on a high mountain. And so even if you are going south, if you're walking that road with them, you're going up to Jerusalem. And I only point out, that out to say that this lends credibility, historical credibility to the Gospels. It's little things like this. These were clearly eyewitness accounts. These were written by people who lived there and walked these roads and, 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 and spoke and wrote like it. Somebody who was writing this after the fact would miss the, the geographical details of that. They would say, we went down to Jerusalem, but people who lived there at the time wouldn't have said that. We're going up to Jerusalem. It just adds historical credibility to the Gospels, little things like that. But back to the story. John situates Jesus and his disciples back in Jerusalem again during a feast of the Jews when whichever feast it was, doesn't tell us which one it was, but doesn't matter. If, there, if it was in Jerusalem at a time of one of the feasts of the Jews, there would have been a lot of people there, a lot of people there. In fact, it, the, 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 the amount of people is, is mentioned uh, again in verse 13, Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So this was a, a crowded time to be in Jerusalem. 
uh, for one of these feasts? Well, first it shows us that Jesus himself was being faithful to the law of Moses, uh, going to the feast, doing what the law required him to do. That's not important. You're saved and your sins are forgiven because he did that, right? So thank you for the obedience of Jesus, Jesus, right? But also, you could look at it from a couple of other ways. You could say, why, why did he cho- choose now to perform this miracle in this, in, this, in this crowded time? You could say he was going there at that time, crowded place for maximal effect, right? So that when he performed this miracle, the multitudes saw it, and multitudes would believe. You could say that. Or you could say, on the other hand, he went during this crowded time for minimal effect, right? Uh, because there were a lot of people there. And, and he could blend into the crowd, and he could he- heal this man, and, and all eyes would not be on him because there were just so many people there. I, I choose to believe the latter, that Jesus had already been saying since the beginning of the gospel, his hour had not come yet, and so he did not want to attract the full ire of the Pharisees. He had already gotten out of, Fer- of Jerusalem one time because of it. He didn't want to attract yet the full ire of the Pharisees, maybe his presence here would just blend in with everybody else. But as he goes on into Jerusalem, we're told in verse 2, Now there there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Again, all kinds of details. I mean, just, just instills trust in the historical reliability of the Gospels. I mean, five roofed colonnades. I mean, okay, thank you. But don't overlook the details that are provided here. But notice them and try to get a good understanding of them in your, in your mind. So, and to help you do that here, to, get, to help you, it, it will actually add something to the story here in verse 2 if you, you make use of the most neglected pages in your Bible, which are the maps in the back of your Bible. I bet, I bet that most of you sitting right here have never looked at the maps in the back of your Bible. But... Uh, if you do that with this story, you know, you always have the same standard little maps in the back of the Bible. You've got, you've got uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, you've got, you got uh, Mesopotamia during Abraham's time, and then you've got Jerusalem in Jesus' day, all of Judea and stuff during Jesus' ministry, and then you've got a map of the broader Mediterranean world during Paul's time, showing his missionary journeys. If you found that map specifically of Jerusalem, during Jesus' life and ministry, you would find on that map uh, this pool labeled the Pool of Bethesda, and you would find the Sheep Gate on the northern perimeter of the temple complex there in Jerusalem. And what you would find, I think, and anybody who lived there at the time would have intuitively known this. We have to look at the maps to figure it out. The point here being that as this man was as the sheep gate was on the northern perimeter of the temple and the sheep gate was just beyond it, it was simply saying, not only was he laying by this pool, but he was outside the temple complex. He was, everybody else for the feast was in the temple. This man was not there. He was outside the temple with a multitude of others who were laying there invalid just as he was. And you can imagine, why, why was that the case? Because people with certain deformities physical deformities, were not allowed to come into the temple complex. Um, And so you can imagine how just desperate. I say, put yourself in this situation. Read it autobiographically. What if you were this man? Then you can imagine how perhaps desperate the people gathered around this pool felt most of the time, especially when it was a feast of the Jews. 
multitudes were coming into Jerusalem, walked right past them into the, into the temple area. This was where the life of Israel was happening, right? John tells us that, that the blind and the lame and the paralyzed were, and a, were just laying there, a multitude of them around this pool. Why were, they, why were they not just gathering outside the temple? Why were they around this particular pool? Well, there's a hint of why. Uh, in verse 7, if you look down, it says the man explained, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another steps down before me. Okay, what is that all about? Well, reading between the lines, it, it, it seems like there's a, some sort of superstition behind it. Uh, if you look back up in verse 4, at the end of verse 4 in your Bible, if your Bible is like mine, mine has a footnote at the end of verse 4, um, where if you follow that footnote down to the bottom of the page, mine says, here's what mine says, some manuscripts insert either in whole or in part these words, waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down in certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's a mouthful. That's a footnote because the evidence doesn't indicate that it was part of the original text that John wrote, but it's more than likely uh, a, a later edition by someone copying the text for other readers and trying to explain. It's like an explanatory note of explaining why people were trying to get into that pool in the first place. I mean, because verse 4 can tell us, you know, the man saying, I try to get down in the pool, but somebody always gets there before me, and you can be left, let me go, why does that matter, right? But this explanatory note that somebody in some, at some, somewhere along the way added helps us make sense of that. Apparently, there was a reason that they were laying there by the pool, because they believed, based on no scripture whatsoever, by the way, that whenever the water stirred in that pool, it could, be, it could be just the wind, or it might be the angel of the Lord who stirred it. And, so who, and, and they just believed, based on superstition, that whoever got there first would in some way be healed of whatever malady they had. Right? And so they fought to be the first one in the water. And this, this, this man had been lame in some way for 38 years. 38 years. And you wonder how long he had gone daily to that pool hoping for a miracle. He had to be both frustrated and borderline despondent. I mean, just, again, read it autobiographically. What if you are that man? I mean, some of you sitting here are not even halfway to 38, right? Twice your lifetime. You're laying there hoping for a miracle. Just imagine what daily life was like with this guy. I mean, just completely hopeless. Completely forgotten. Completely anonymous. Because he's just one guy. I know he's been there a long time. He's just one guy of a multitude of guys laying there at that pool. And everybody else just walks right on by into the temple. Just a, he's forgotten. He's ignored. He's anonymous, deceived by a false hope. I mean, he's sitting there despondent because he actually believes, man, if I had been the first one there, I would have been healed. 
It's like really believing the guy on TV who's going to send you the miracle spring water is going to heal you of whatever you want to be healed of or make you rich next year. There's no doubt that, that, that most who walked by just ignored the lame people laying there. I mean, they're, they're there all the time. So how often, how often do you drive by something on the way to school or work you drive the same route every day, and somebody, do you know where such and such is? No. Then you come to find out it's like you literally pass it every single day. You just drive. You don't notice the things that are right beside you because you just do it every, all the time. It's their version of that. You know, they just walk by them every day. They're, they're anonymous. You know, you might feel sorry for them if you actually do pay attention to them, but you just don't. The pool there was also called the the sheep pool, being there by the sheep gate. Why is it called that? Because that's also the pool where shepherds would bring their sheep to be watered, right? So you've got shepherds who are probably tired, hungry, just a little rough around the collar, bringing a herd of sheep to this pool. It was probably frustrating for the shepherd to try to navigate his way around all the lame and the blind to get his animals to the water and he's probably every time he thinks about them he's probably annoyed by them <laughs> i mean just put yourself in this situation so for these people who are, who are that nobody saw they don't they don't care for them the first time you meet jesus in this story is verse six and what does it say when jesus saw him it didn't just say he saw them he saw him laying there. Jesus saw him. And it says that he knew that he had been there a long time. I'd be willing to bet that this guy had been there longer than anybody else. You know, new, new invalid guy comes to the pool, you know. I might want to talk to this guy. He's been around longer than we have. I mean, it, it in, it in, John intends it to be shocking that he had been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus saw and he found the most desperate man there. And not just the guy who suffered physically for the longest, but the guy who had been caught up in a hopeless superstition the longest. And he approached him and he asked him if he wanted to be healed. And in verse 7, no doubt reflexively, the man just parroted the same superstition to Jesus, explaining that, hey, you know, yeah, I want to be healed, but I don't know if you know, but here's my problem. Here's my problem. Um, I, I, I don't ever get to the pool first, you know. Surely you understand. Probably didn't even notice the, probably the mercifully incredulous look on Jesus' face. But as he listened, it just shows you how incredibly merciful Jesus is. This guy wasn't asking a thing from Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He's just a man that walked up to him. Odd. Right? Not a, she not, a, not a shepherd annoyed with him. Somebody who actually saw him, walked up and talked to him. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't ask for a thing from Jesus. Jesus saw him. Jesus came up to him. Jesus asked him, do you wish to be healed? Clearly he did, but he was deceived about how. Then he certainly didn't ask Jesus to do anything. He didn't even say, so Jesus, would you hang around and next time it stirs, you seem to be able would you pick me up and take me? He didn't even do that. It wasn't the, what I'm trying to say, 
it was not the pristineness of this man's faith that healed him. It wasn't. To my knowledge, he didn't have any. It was the sovereign mercy of Jesus Christ. This man's life was forever changed. We'll come back to this guy in just a minute. But just think about Jesus here. This was just simply completely unsolicited kindness. Life-altering kindness. Seriously, this is Jesus. it's, It's not that complicated. He really is that good. But as the story proceeds, what is the response to all of this? How did, how did the Jews and also this newly healed man react? Let's think about the response. You know something is up when the next thing John lets you in on at the end of verse 9, oh yeah, all this went down on the Sabbath day. Let's see what happens. The man who, whom Jesus healed apparently first went to tell the Jewish leaders that he had been healed. And that was the normal thing to do. Remember when Jesus healed other people in Jerusalem, he said, first, go tell the, go, like he, he cleansed the leper. You know, he told him, go, go, go show yourself to the, to the rulers. Let them know you've been cleansed and healed. You're no longer unclean. Tells them to go. So this man instinctively said, I want to go tell the Jewish rulers that I've been healed. I'm no longer lame. And you can imagine, well, it's, you know that because in verse 10 it says this man and the Jewish leaders are talking to each other. You, you could just imagine the joy of this man. Can you just imagine the joy of this man? It's not just that he's no longer lame. It's just not that he can, for the first time in his life, likely, get up and walk. That's, that's joy enough. But he was able to walk into the temple where all those people were and go find the most revered people in his life and say, look, look at me, you know. I can walk. How might you think, how might you think they could react to a man standing right in front of them who could now walk? Something previously unthinkable for nearly four decades of his life. How might they react? Put yourself in that situation. How might you react? Would you, I mean, you can imagine amazement. Oh my goodness. What are you doing here? Right? You're walking? Amazement? Joy? Surely. This is awesome. I can't believe it. Hug the man. I'm so happy for you. What do they say? How do they respond to this wonder? Verse 10. Dude, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. What? I mean, just marinate on that for a minute. You had, the, the man probably said, what? 
I tried and I tried and I tried to think of another, like, modern-day example that would help convey this. But I, anything I came up with was, like, nowhere close to the lame walking. I mean, maybe, maybe it's something like you've been paralyzed for most of your life. Maybe you were in a car accident when you were a child, and you've been in a wheelchair all of your life. And there's, a, like, some amazing surgery that they realize that they can perform and it might it just might give you the ability to walk and you haven't been able to do that for most of your life and they and they perform the surgery and when you wake up you don't know if you're going to have feeling or not and you wiggle your toes and you go oh my goodness and you can walk and you've been a church member here all of your life even when you were in a wheelchair and now you can walk and you want to tell one of your pastors. And you come up to me and I see that you have like a, a pen with the hospital's name on it in your pocket or something. And you come up to me and you expect joy on my face. And I say, you shouldn't have taken that pen from the hospital. I mean, it's just empty. There is no love or even wonder here. Even when the man tells him that, well, the man who healed me, he's the one that told me to take up my bed and to walk. They didn't even pause at that point and said, a man healed you? They instead stayed just as hollow as they ever were and said, who's the man who told you to take up your bed and walk? Who's the man who told you to break the law? Not who's the man who healed you. Who's the man that told you to break the law? Here's what Jim Hamilton, he wrote a commentary on this passage, and here's what he said. They are more concerned about regulation than about restoration. They are more concerned about adherence to the law than about the healing of the body. They care more about the letter than about the Lord. They care more about obeying commands than enjoying the presence of the one whose character the commands convey. What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about myself? I pray that this would not characterize us. The people who rightly, rightly make much of the Bible. That we pray and people make cool graphics saying that we believe. Good job. That this is the holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. That we, of all people, would not be characterized by truth without any grace whatsoever. That, that we would be blind to opportunities around us all the time to love our neighbor because we're too busy loving God. as if you can have one without the other. It's not without significance that the very next verse tells us that Jesus had withdrawn so that not only the man whom Jesus healed, it's like, oh, I don't know his name, but especially the Jewish leaders, they didn't know it was Jesus who healed him because Jesus did not reveal himself to them. 
But what does it say in verse 14? After, afterward, Jesus found the healed man in the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well. And he said, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus left the leaders in their blind arrogance, but he went and he found the humble man that he healed. And for, and for one thing, where did he find him? In the temple. He didn't want to leave once he got there. In the temple, the place he could never go before. But for the other thing, just notice how happy Jesus is for him. Happiness just jumps out of that verse. See, you are well. Look at you. That's Jesus. But he followed it up by reminding him that, that bodily healing in, in and of itself is of no value if his heart is, remains unrepentant toward God. So that goes, that goes back to the very first question that Jesus actually asked him beside the pool. Do you want to be healed? The word translated there, healed, can also mean whole, complete, completely healthy and whole, sound, through and through. Do you want to be made whole? And don't forget that this took place on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, in which at, on, during the week of creation, six days he, he created on the seventh day, he rested from his work of creation. It was the Sabbath. His work of creation was now whole and complete. And the man gladly listened to Jesus. And he loved him. And he went away and he told the leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him, thinking they would rejoice in knowing. But how do they respond? Verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. At which point, Jesus said, all right, I got to talk to you guys. He tells them, in, in, in just a few words that he says in verse 17, he basically tells them, you have fundamentally misunderstood the Sabbath. I mean, even in the midst of all of your unloving, meticulous rule-keeping, you have misunderstood the Sabbath. How had they misunderstood it? Because... Jesus basically tells them, my father's working until now and I'm working. He basically tells them, even with the Lord, even with the Lord our God, when he rested on the Sabbath, his resting was not inactivity. We are still in the seventh day, right? Do you, do you, do you understand that? I mean, there was morning and there was evening and there was the first day and there was morning and evening the second day and morning and evening the third, fourth, fifth, sixth. There is no morning and evening on the seventh day. God is still resting from his work of creation until Jesus comes again and his work of a new creation begins. We're still in the seventh day. We are still here. And has he been inactive all of that time? No, he has been providentially ruling over his creation all of this time. So if any work is good to do on the Sabbath, it is a work of mercy to make a man whole. So Jesus tells him in verse 17, My father is working until now and I am working. His Sabbath has been going on since creation and he's been working and I'm working essentially saying I'm God by the way let me tell you what the Sabbath is about they don't miss the point 
because in verse 18, see in verse, in verse 16, they were just persecuting Jesus. In verse 18 now, now they were seeking all the more to kill him because they thought he had blasphemed, calling himself God. And of course, he was, and he did. But they were blind. Well, I want to leave you with that. I want to leave you with that because I want you to take just that, that part of the story, what we've just talked about, think through what we've just said together. So, like, dig deep into it and say, how am I like this man in the, in, uh, that was by the pool? What do I learn about him? And how am I like that? How, what, how am, I like the, am I like the Jewish leaders in any way? And if so, let's just be honest with ourselves. If so, how so? Am I like these Jewish leaders? What do we learn about Jesus in this story? What does it lead me to do?